thank you for tuning into the podcast of Restoration Foursquare Church. RFC, located in Concord, New Hampshire, is a church that desires to develop disciples who will love God, love people, and serve the city. We pray that this sermon will help you grow in your understanding of who God is and how much He loves you. Well, we want to welcome Pastor Peter Shepard this morning. He's going to be sharing the word with us this morning, and so um, as he comes, would you pray with me as, as we as we launch into this, uh, this time together. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the gift that you've given us through the Bible. And God, thank you for Pastor Peter, who is one who rightly divides your word and, and teaches well and proclaims your truth. God, I, I pray this morning as he speaks that they would be your words speaking through him to us, Lord, and that we, each of us, would find ways to apply the word that we hear to our lives. God, we thank you that you dwell in our presence right here, right now, and we thank you that you dwell in our presence wherever we go. And so may your word, as it's spoken, equip us to live lives truly as disciples for you everywhere we go. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. So remember now, we're in the book of Acts. Today we're going to enter into chapter 5. The uh, book of Acts is really kind of a long letter or a treatise, if you will, that Luke sent to his friend Theophilus to talk about the things that Jesus did. Luke did not put chapter headings or verse numbers (laughs) in his letter. This goes directly after Chapter 4, obviously, 5 comes after 4, and you can find this in your Bibles, they're under the seats if you don't have one with you, but we're going to go into chapter 5. Now I want to remind you that this whole book, again, was written by Luke, kind of as a letter to his friend, to give an account of what God did to bring his church into being, his church. It's the second letter, kind of the sequel to his first letter, which was the story of the gospel, which we know as the Gospel of Luke now. But again, it was just him writing to Theophilus to tell him about all the wonderful things that God did. Now Luke was a doctor. And because he was a doctor, he was inquisitive. He was a born researcher. He looked into things and studied things and looked for answers. He dug into details. That was his nature. We are very blessed that God gave us Luke, the evangelist, such a person who left no stone unturned as he looked for answers and to present God's work. Now, I make that statement to remind us that science, I have to do a little commercial. You watch television, they do the intro to things, and then what do they do? They go to a commercial. So I'm going to give you a commercial <laughs> about Luke or about science. Luke was a scientist, and I want to remind us that science and research are under God's authority and sovereignty. Amen? True science and the research of a true scientist will always point to God and his glory. Science only uncovers or reveals what God has already placed there for us to discover. Science that claims the absence of God or tries to point us away from him is false on its face. So Luke is a true scientist who faithfully recounts all the miraculous events along the way without any effort, 
to try and craft any kind of a narrative or suit any preconceived plan of his own. He simply reports what he sees. So Luke has been reporting the circumstances and activities of this young church, and we have seen God work miraculously in several instances, haven't we? To enable the apostles to display God's power. And in doing so, people were giving attention to the message that they were speaking. Things were moving fast. Thousands of people had put their faith in Jesus. Now just imagine that. A few days earlier, there was only 120 people praying in a room. The Holy Spirit shows up, and now there's thousands. Now try to envision this if all of a sudden tomorrow we had thousands of people <laughs> that we had to deal with. So things were moving very fast. Even when John and Peter were arrested a couple of chapters ago, the gospel was spread through their testimony. That was an attack from the outside. The religious leaders were trying to attack their message, the message of Jesus. But God caused that to actually expand the church and the gospel to spread even more. So when we left off last week, we were seeing a wonderful church, people just loving God, right? People just loving each other. And things were going well. Even when attacks came from the outside, the gospel was being spread. And at the end of chapter 4, where we left off, we had the report that Barnabas had sold some property and made the proceeds a gift to the church. Which leads us into today's reading, which kind of takes a pause that we need to pay attention to. If I can have Acts up, I can't see the screen. So Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, states that about a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and borrowed only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Wow. What just happened? <laughs> you know, so often we hear of people who think, I love Jesus. He's warm. He's loving. He's soft. He's touchy-feely. 
Not like the God of the Old Testament who was vindictive and did things, you know, he was the kind of the angry God. You've heard people say things like that. Well, this sure doesn't feel that way, does it? We have to remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I point to the sign that we have over here with that scripture from Hebrews 13.8. God doesn't change. So knowing that will help us gain some insight, I think, into God's pattern, into his ways, and hopefully we can gain some insights into his dealings with us. Now before I go farther, I want to state emphatically that Satan does not respect boundaries. He is just as willing to try to destroy a church from the inside as he is by attacking through people from the outside. Matter of fact, oftentimes he prefers to destroy a church from the inside out. Now we saw outside in attack from the council trying to arrest Peter and John. But Satan's attacks will come from many angles and we have to be prepared. Today's teaching is to help us understand this and be prepared to resist his efforts to defeat God's work in the church and hopefully in our congregation specifically. I really want to get started by remembering that the church was only days old. It was in its infancy. And I want to keep that in mind. The church was in its infancy and we're going to roll back to the book of Joshua for a moment. Something that happened in that book in chapter 7. I'm not going to read it all but I would encourage you to do so. You remember the story of Joshua, Joshua and the, and, uh, the Battle of Jericho? Got the, ta- the song starting to play? And what did they do? They just started the conquest of the Promised Land. Six days they marched around Jericho, and on the sixth day they marched six times around Jericho, and what happened? At the end, they blew the trumpets and the army shouted, and the walls fell down. The the Hebrew army had a great victory that day. This was the first victory in the conquest of the promised land. Keep that in mind. So much like the infant church in Acts, the work of God in conquering the promised land was also in its infancy. Now let's also remember that marching around the city, shouting, blasting trumpets, and having the walls fall down was a miracle. These walls were thick. They were substantial, so thick in fact that houses were actually built into them. We know that because Rahab, who assisted the Hebrew spies who spied out Jericho, actually lived in her house upon the wall. So this was not just, you know, your average PVC fence. This was a substantial wall that fell down. It was a miraculous act that God caused. What? He was bringing miracles to bear for his people, just as he was doing for the infant church. Now let's keep these two things in mind. Infant church, infant conquest. I want to say that when God is birthing something new, he will bring miracles to bear to assist that work. Now it doesn't have to be a great birthing of the whole entire church or the conquest of the promised land. God will give each of us miracles for the things he has called us to do. Now, I've experienced that in my own walk. 
And I've heard thousands, literally thousands of testimonies of people who can point to something that was miraculous that happened in order for God to foster the work that he's called them to. God uses miracles. Matter of fact, it's one of the main ways that God affirms us in the work that he's called us to. It's also a way that we can discern that he might not be at work. Sometimes I get it in my head, I think I have to go do this thing. And it doesn't go right. It's difficult and tough and it's like, did God really call me to do this? Now let's make an important distinction. God did call his church into being and he did give them miracles to foster it. God did call the Hebrews to take the promised land and he did do miracles to foster it. Difficulties that they had later on did not mean that they did the wrong thing. What I'm trying to say is, when God calls us to do something, he's going to assist us. When he hasn't called us, we have to keep a mind out that maybe this isn't going so well because he didn't call me there. This is called, I'm talking about launching into a new work. Now let's go back to Joshua for a minute. Great victory, the walls had fall down, but something was amiss. They were all prepared. They were feeling good, right? Wow, great victory. So they said, well, the battle plan called for them to go up to the next town, which was called AI, AI. Not artificial intelligence, but just AI. And they were feeling so good, they said, you know what? That's a small town, we don't need that many. Send 3,000 soldiers up there, that should be enough to take them out and everything. So they go up. And they go to the Battle of Ai, and what happens? The unthinkable happens. They get routed and defeated. And they go back to the main army with their tails between their legs. And so the leaders fall on their faces before God, and they say, what is going on? God, what happened? Well, something was going on that they didn't know about. And God doesn't mince words. We can have uh, Joshua 7, verse 10 and 11 up there. God had told them and ordered them not to take any of the spoils of Jericho for themselves. Not the gold, not the gems, not the silver, not the livestock, not anything. All of the spoils of the battle of Jericho are to be devoted to God. God doesn't mince words. He tells Joshua that somebody has stolen some of the devoted things. And it says, so the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. So they set about the business of trying to discover who it was. And through divine guidance, a man named Akan was identified as the culprit, and he confessed. Akan had seen 200 shekels of silver, a gold bar of 50 shekels, and a fancy coat. He confessed to coveting them and taking them. Now, two things I want to point out here. First is that he coveted and he stole. Keep that in mind. Coveting and theft. The second and most important is that his sin wasn't his sin alone. What did God say to Joshua? Israel has sinned. He didn't say Akan has sinned. He said Israel has sinned. The sin was upon the whole nation. It cost 36 men their lives in the battle. 
And Akan and his family were stoned and burned in order to purge, purge, purge excuse me, the sin from Israel. Now, does that sound very harsh? Is it any more than what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? We here at RFC are blessed with an abundance of infants and toddlers, are we not? How do we tr handle infants? We care for them. We protect them. We shelter them with great care, love, and protection. They are wholly dependent upon their parents for everything. And I believe the same is true for the works of God. He is very protective of his infant work. And he deals swiftly and harshly with anything that threatens it. We see that at work in both of these cases. I would just say that what we see with Joshua is the same as what we see with Peter's dealings with Ananias. God is not going to let sin derail his work. Another important, I believe, important point is that we still remember that the sin goes beyond ourselves. We see with Akan and his 36 people had died in the battle because of his sin. In addition, his whole family died as well. All because this one man decided to covet and act on that temptation. If I could put this statement up on the screen. Understand that our sin has impact beyond ourselves. It always affects others. We cannot make that mistake of thinking that we, our sin is ours alone, that it's hidden. Obviously, it's not hidden before God. It's one of the things Satan always tries to trick us with. God won't know. He talks about that through the Bible often. But more than that, it actually can impact others and can defile others. Now, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, we don't see an immediate corporate impact, I mean by corporate, among the members of the church. But I believe there could have been, except for a key difference between the two episodes. And I'm going to go there, but before that I want to point something that is also miraculous. In both cases, God gave Peter and Joshua what we call a word of knowledge. for the work he was doing. In Joshua's case, we see it. God spoke. Get up. Why are you on your face? Israel has sinned. That's a word of knowledge. Because <laughs> Joshua didn't know why they were being punished. So he asked God, and God told him. When God tells you something, guess what? That's a word of knowledge. In Peter's case, God spoke to him about Ananias even before Ananias deposited his gift. In both cases, God gave knowledge to address the issue. Now, please remember that all God does is to bless the work that he is doing. Sometimes we may get the idea that words of knowledge or words of wisdom are good only to be uplifting and encouraging, feel good. But this word that he gave to Peter and to Joshua were, were good, but they were to deal with something that wasn't good.
looking at these two episodes, God's word of knowledge results in death. Not so good for Akan, Ananias, or Sapphira, was it? But good for his people. Make sense? The effect was that the work continued and grew. The conquest of the promised land, the expansion of the church. In Joshua's case, the sin was dealt with, and the people went on to conquer the promised land. In Acts, Luke says this in the last verse, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. In each case, it was a serious wake-up call for what God was doing. A reminder to each of us that God's work is about him, not about us. Amen? Please be diligently aware of how important God sees his work and how seriously we must see his work and our part in it. There is a key difference, however, between these two episodes, which is important for us to understand, I believe. These two episodes are very similar, except in Joshua's case, 36 men died before they sought the Lord's guidance on what was wrong. They did not consult God beforehand, right? Send 3,000 guys up to I, no problem, we'll take it in a heartbeat. Guess what, no. And they were routed. Was God playing games with them? Hardly. They were learning an important lesson that we all must realize, I believe. We simply must seek the Lord's guidance at all times so that we are aware of any weaknesses that might threaten his work in us and through us. So the difference in the case of Ananias was that Peter already knew by the word of the Holy Spirit what was going on. Only Ananias and Sapphira died for their sin. So what caused the difference? I believe it was one of spiritual preparedness. I believe that Peter and the apostles and disciples were in a continual state of what I call spiritual preparedness. By that I mean they were, they were seeking God through prayer every day. We see it all through the book of Acts. They were in prayer, they were in prayer, they were in prayer. When Josh talked about the raising up of the cripple, they were on the way to the temple for the hour of what? Prayer. They were spiritually prepared. They sought the knowledge of the guidance of the Holy Spirit every day, and Peter was ready when Ananias and Sapphira tried to put one over on them. Joshua was not. He sought God's guidance after the damage was done. Good lesson for us. Great reminder. Each of us, I believe, needs to be in prayer, spiritual preparedness through God's word for what God is doing in our lives. We need to learn the lesson of Peter that being spiritually prepared is far less costly than seeking God's guidance after the harm is already done. These things are important for our understanding. However, I don't think we can close today without looking at the ugly cost of sin. If you remember our passage from last week, in the very last verse, Luke tells us about who? Barnabas and his gift to the church. At this point, all lights are green. Things are going smoothly. 
All systems are go in the church as we know. And the same was true for Joshua and Israel. This is at the point the tragedy happens. This is when, please hear me, this is when Satan loves to come in. When you feel like you're on top of things and things are going well, boy, does Satan love to come in and trip, trip people up then. Something that spiritual preparedness would help prevent. In both cases, he employs the sin of coveting to try and undermine God's work through his people. Now, several months ago, I had the privilege of addressing you regarding the 10th commandment, which is the commandment against coveting. And it's because of that that I asked Pastor Kevin if I could have the permission to address you today regarding the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, because I believe it is the sin of coveting that is at the root of what they did. Coveting is serious. Remember, it's not the sin that actually does something. It's the sin of wanting to do something, if I can say it. It is a gateway sin. Today, I'm going to call it the gateway to death. Sound scary? It is, believe me. It is true that sin separates us in our relationship with God, but coveting is to me especially vile because it is the sin that causes us to question the goodness of God. It kills our trust in him and brings death, both spiritual and perhaps physical, as we've seen today. Let's think about that. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Wasn't it that the serpent called into question God's goodness to Eve? Didn't he undermine her trust in God? Didn't he cause Eve to covet the fruit of the forbidden tree? And what happened? When she and Adam ate of the fruit, death entered the world. Because of that coveting, we are all forced to die. Something God never wanted for us, but now we must face. In Joshua, the story regarding Akan, others died because of his coveting. And he and his whole family died because he coveted a coat, some silver, and some gold. What about Ananias and Sapphira? How did coveting bring their death? After all, they sold some property. And they gave a gift to the church. What could be wrong with that? How could that be coveting? Actually, in two ways. As a reminder, I want to re bring up Matthew 16, 18, which Jesus says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus doesn't say anything. My name's Peter, but I'm not that guy. He doesn't say anything about building me. He doesn't say anything about building you. What is his goal? To build his church. Now, don't get me wrong. God loves you. He loves me. And truthfully, he wants to have a deep and personal relationship with each and every one of us. He wants us to abide in him, and he wants us to be fruitful. That's John 15, 5. But if I've explained anything today, I hope it is that Jesus is passionate about his people in total, passionate about his church, 
and he will defend it. Ultimately, it is not about us individually, though he loves each and every one of us. It's about his church. That is what he came to build. Now, we are blessed to be able to be part of his work, and he wants to use us, each and every one of us. As Paul calls us, we are living stones used to build the spiritual house of God, which is the church. An individual stone really isn't much, is it? They have to be put together to build. Anybody here ever been up to the Castle in the Clouds? If you remember when they're explaining to you that the stones in that building are specially crafted five-sided stones to be fit together. That always reminds me of the image that I have of God shaping each and every one of us into living stones in the church. But they have to be put together. Individual stones by themselves laying on the ground are nothing. They don't mean anything. They have to be put together. That's how the structure is built. The importance of the church is, and we'll get back to Ananias and Sapphira, in Philippians, Paul says, consider others as more important than yourselves. It's difficult for us as Westerners, especially in America, because we're very me-centric. It's hard for us to think of others as more important than ourselves, and our society around us just reinforces that. But this is how to build a church, is to take our eyes off of ourselves and keep it on others. God is not going to neglect to bless us. As a matter of fact, the more we take our eyes off of ourselves and think about others, the more we think about how our stone helps support the other ones around us, the more blessed we are. That's that lesson that we learn from the word. Jesus told his apostles. They were, I don't know how many times these guys were arguing about who was the best, you know? gets tiring. They, what were you guys talking about? Well, we were talking about who's going to be number one, you know? Don't do that. The least of you will be the greatest. That's the lesson of the gospel. That's the lesson of the church. We fit together looking at others and how we're fitted into the, the wall or the building that Jesus is trying to build. Therefore, we must also always be mindful that we serve him but we must serve his church in humility. We're called to both of those things. So what does all that have to do with poor Ananias and Sapphira? Well, simply put, they took their eye off of the church and put it on themselves. Peter says they stole from God and they lied to God. How? Because they misrepresented their gift. These people owned some property and it was theirs to do with as they pleased. Peter says all of that. It was still yours. And even after you sold it, the money was still yours. They weren't forced. It wasn't a communist thing. They weren't forced to give up their money. It was always in their possession. But they conspired to hold back some of the money and present, present their gifts as if, they, as if they had not. They were misrepresenting. This is very sad. You know, because Ananias could have simply come in and put down the amount and told Peter, hey, we sold some land, we're going to keep part of it, but the rest of it we're going to give to help the church. He would have been cool <laughs> if he had just been honest. 
For that, they will likely have been embraced because we know that Peter told them the proceeds from the sales was theirs to do with as they wanted. But they coveted. And their coveting was a threat to the church. They held back but tried to present their gift as something it wasn't. There's a movie I can recommend to you. It's called The Bible in the Beginning. It goes way back. Famous actors, George C. Scott, lots lots of people, Richard Harris. Richard Harris plays Cain in this. And I bring that up because you know the whole story of Cain and Abel? Abel's gift was presentable to God. Cain's gift was not. Well, in this, they show Abel. He's, he's keeper of the flocks. He was sacrificing a lamb, and God appreciated his. Well, Cain, they show, he was a keeper of the fields, and he had a basket. And he was putting grain in the basket to offer for the sacrifice. But just at the last moment, he looks around kind of and takes some back out. And then he goes to give his offering to the Lord. And the smoke goes up and gets in his face and everything, and he can't give his offering. I said, that's a perfect image of Ananias and Sapphira. They were presenting their offering to God, but they had pulled some out. They had held it back. It's a good movie to watch. I recommend it. Their motives were selfish and dishonest. When Barnabas sold the land, his name Barnabas, by the way, was actually Joseph, but the apostles called him Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement. Right after that episode, Ananias and Sapphira come in. They were seeking similar recognition, I believe, but were willing to sink to deception to achieve it. Their motives were selfish and dishonest. They were coveting recognition and position. And it cost them everything. That's why I want to close with some encouragement. Once again, God gives each of us some giftings. Things for which he has called us to serve with in the church. What he has given to another is not ours to be jealous of or to covet. He has brought each of us into his church for his glory, for his purpose. Once again, it's about him, not about us. We should always remember that we serve the church. The church doesn't serve us. Now, don't misunderstand. Yes, the church serves us because Jesus calls each of us to serve. And the church serves us in our need, and we come around each other. Yes, all of those things are true. But that's because the living stones around you are supporting you in your time of need. Likewise, we support others in their time of need. God knows each of us. He knows our gifting, what he's given to us, our calling, and our place in his work. By coveting the place of another, we put to death the very work which Jesus has called to glorify him. Remember, Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is the giving of ourselves and our gifts to each other, to Jesus and his church that is a greater blessing and then a greater blessing occurs in our own lives Father we thank you so much that you have called us to be part of your church that you have brought us to this place Lord and we thank you so much help us Lord to think only about you and about others that you would shape us Shape us into the stone that you need us to be, Lord. Put us into the wall where we need to support others, Lord. You have called us to this place, 
We thank you and we worship you for that. In Jesus' name. Can we thank Pastor Peter for that word? It truly, it truly is, um, well, our, our character is revealed in how we pursue the desires of our heart. Whether we would cheat and make exceptions for who we're called to be, it, it, it reveals who we are and it reveals our character. And I think that the message that Pastor Peter gave us uh, just regarding the, the lustful intent, the covetousness, um, of the things that we try and pursue and maybe even the manipulation that we engage in trying to get what we want as opposed to receiving from God with open hands but also keeping our hands open understanding that what we have is not just for our own blessing not just for our own satisfaction but that we would be able to bless others and so this week and throughout our life may, may this message be applied in such a way that our eyes are open to those around us and that what we have been provided by the Lord because everything that he has given he is he, everything that we have he has given to us that what he's provided to us that we would see not as just personal provision but as, as communal provision as an opportunity to lift others up to restore the brokenness around us God bless you guys love you have a fantastic day If you are local to Concord, we would love for you to join us at Restoration Foursquare Church. We meet every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. Consider yourself invited. You can find out more about us at rfcnh.com.